Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to delve behind the headlines to discuss what's really happening in the world's most important region. My name is James Crabtree, and I'm going to be a guest host on this podcast today. I'm based in Singapore, and normally I work at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. And today we're going to talk about the relationship between the US and India, one of the world's most important bilateral strategic relationships, but one that is changing very quickly. This is partly because of the way that these two democracies have increased their partnership over the last two decades, but it's also deeply bound up in the way that they are coping with the rise of a third great power, namely China, and how that is changing both under the leadership of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and most recently under President-elect Joe Biden. So to talk about this, I'm joined by two of India's leading practitioner commentators. First, from Bangalore in India, Nirupama Rao, who is India's foreign secretary from 2009 to 2011, and has also been the Indian ambassador in both the United States and China, and so is well-placed to comment on these issues. Secondly, from not too far away here in Singapore, Raja Mohan, who runs the Institute of South Asian Studies, a think tank based here that many of you will know from his writings in the Indian Express and elsewhere. He's one of the most perceptive and thoughtful commentators on Indian strategic affairs. So let's dive right into it. Raja, let me start with you. Could you paint a picture for us of the relationship between India and the US, the world's two largest democracies? Let's say compared to a couple of decades ago, it seems to have been improving. Could you explain why that is? Well, I think since the visit of U.S. President Bill Clinton to India in March 2000, which itself was a visit after nearly two decades, there's been a steady, continuous improvement of the bilateral relationship. Governments have come and gone in both Washington and Delhi, but the relationship has been on a clear, unambiguously upward trajectory. The commercial relationship is now India's most important with $160 billion of trade. There is security cooperation and defense cooperation, which is quite unprecedented. The kind of things India does with the U.S., it doesn't do with any other country. On the political level, what started out as a very distrustful relationship in the 90s, today it's actually there is a sense of deep trust and confidence. And then the Indian diaspora, close to 5 million people in the U.S., and they do so well. So you have actually a fairly stable, robust, and a multifaceted uh, relationship that is in place now. We're talking here about a relationship that's been getting closer over the previous years and decades. Nirupama, let me bring you in. So you used to represent India in the U.S. Could you tell us how does the U.S. view its relationship with India? What, what does it look to get out of the ties between Washington and New Delhi? Let me first and foremost say that I agree with Raja's introductory remarks. And if there is a directional compass in Indian foreign policy today, and you're looking for some kind of North Star or a Pole Star, certainly it's the relations with the United States, very much predicated on democracy, on diversity, on the diaspora, and a very steady trajectory of development over the last decade, decade and a half. And nobody in either country disagrees about the benefits of this relationship. They're all unanimous about uh, saying that it's good for both countries. And there's the people-centric factor too. So 
that certainly helps in relationships such as ours. And there are no major Cold War hangovers, really, in this relationship. Although I think uh, assessing the current state of the relationship, I would wish for a greater quotient of a trust factor within the elite establishments in either country. And some specters from the past do survive, including the involved relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan. I think the United States certainly sees principled merit in the relationship with India. India is a geostrategic partner. It's not a rival, not a usurper, as China is seen today in Washington. And India's democracy, its territorial size, its strategic coastline, its pivotal position in the Indian Ocean, the huge population, the expanse of its market and its economy, its record as a responsible global stakeholder, and a potential, not yet there, counterpoise in the region to China, make it an attractive strategic partner. So that is how I believe the U.S. now views the relationship. And recently, when the former defense secretary, U.S. defense secretary, Mr. Esper, was in India for the 2 plus 2 with Secretary of State Pompeo, he called this a consequential partnership. And I suppose that's the way the U.S. sees it today. And I expect during the Biden administration, this trend will further develop. So you mentioned China, and and this is the elephant in the room in these discussions. So let's talk about that. Could you explain earlier this year, there were border clashes between India and China, and that has had a dramatic effect on both elite and public opinion in India with consequences for the US-India relationship. Could you explain just briefly what happened and why this has been so important in the backdrop to this question of the U.S.-India relationship? Well, like the United States, India also sees an Asian world, in fact, a global stage, increasingly dominated by uh, vaultingly ambitious and I think a lot of people would say autistic China. So that's why there's this compelling logic in, you know, seeking closer relationships between countries such as ours and also with Japan and Asian democracies like Singapore or Indonesia or South Korea. Now, the dilemma that we face in our relations with China, which are difficult, just to put it simplistically, are more than for any other Asian country. First and foremost, we share a long land border with China. It's a contested border. There are conflicting territorial claims. There's a history of a border conflict. And striking a balance in this relationship has always, even in the most normal of times, and those times come very, very few and far between, it can be a very complicated and continuing challenge. What happened this summer in mid-June was that there was an armed clash along the line in a place called the Galwan Valley, along the line of actual control between India and China in the region that we call Ladakh. And what that resulted in was not only loss of life, fatalities on both sides. Uh, We don't know the Chinese numbers, but we lost 20 soldiers and one commanding officer. And that has completely changed the situation. First and foremost, it's militarized the line of actual control. And it came after 45 years of a very quiet situation along the line of actual control in all sectors of the border between India and China. And it's a long, long border, you know, over almost 3,500 kilometers long. And we hadn't had any loss of life. And this tragedy in Galwan has completely upended the situation. Things are certainly not normal. 
Both sides are talking of disengagement, talking of de-escalation. There have been meetings at the political, bureaucratic and military level, but no real improvement. What is a saving grace is that communication channels are open between the two countries. And I wouldn't really say that there's been a complete systems failure. There are certain mechanisms that continue to work. And as I said, the bureaucratic level, the military commanders level, and the agreements that were signed from 1993 onwards to maintain peace and tranquility along the border, they've been shown as rather flawed or violated in practice, but they still exist. At least they haven't been thrown away. And the special representatives mechanism to resolve the boundary question between the two countries, which had been appointed at the top leadership level, and which consists of our NSA in India and the SR, the special representative of the Chinese side, that's also still in place. But distrust has multiplied between the two countries, and public opinion in India is definitely weighted against China. As for the government, the government of India has been quite restrained and cryptic in the communication of its policy. It says it wants to return to status quo, but there's been a big fallout and lots of craters in the relationship at the moment. So one of the consequences of this clash has been a change in India's strategic thinking. If I might put it like this, traditionally, the United States, I think, has seen India as a somewhat frustrating partner because it has wanted India to move a little bit more quickly than often India has wanted to do. In the aftermath of this clash with China, there's a sense that India is now much more willing to go closer to the United States because it has become more worried about China. I wonder, could you talk us through that? How profound has this shift been in India's thinking with relation to China and and with what consequence for the bilateral relationship with the US? The current crisis uh, is certainly an important uh, moment in the way the India-US relationship has evolved. But I would certainly predate it before what happened in Galwan. My sense is, look, I think it has been building up. I mean, India is generally not easily rushed. But if you see in the last three years, I mean, there has been a steady expansion of the India-US relationship. Some of the foundational agreements were signed before this crisis. And then our problems with China were beginning to multiply in any case. For example, India's criticism of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, that was in May 2017. India walked out of the RCEP essentially because of the problem of trade deficits with China in 2019. So so we had actually the conflict with China was growing and the engagement and the expansion of the partnership with the U.S. have been proceeding. And certainly uh, this crisis uh, certainly intensifies it or accelerates it, both in terms of the distrust and the conflict that we have with China. It's one rooted in a fundamental imbalance in the power equation. A Chinese economy is five times bigger. It spends more on defense and the kind of things it does. So for India, I think it's going to be a long-term challenge of how do we close that power gap. And one of the ways of doing that is really to strengthen ties with the U.S., with Japan, and a whole lot of other middle powers in this part of the world. So I think that structurally the movement was already in place, and this only kind of consolidates that movement in both directions the negative one vis-a-vis China and the positive one vis-a-vis the US. We're meant to be discussing the US and uh, and India, but but China, in a sense, plays a huge role in this. Just to kind of press you a little bit, I mean, is it your sense that this shift in Indian strategic thinking since the clash earlier this year is, in a sense, irreversible? 
meaning that India is not going to decide in six months or a year's time that it needs to mend fences with China and, and go back to more of a of an ambivalent position between the US and China, that, that in a sense, something significant happened earlier this year that has marked a disjuncture with what went before. And, and now, to put it very crudely, India has moved much more into the China skeptic or anti-Chinese camp. Would that be a fair way of putting it? Or how would you, you mark not, this change? I'm not so sure. As I said, look, the structural imbalance with China was growing. I think this was not the first crisis. We had one in 2013, 2014, 2017 and the latest one now, the problems with China were beginning to build up. So that is one part. But at the same time, when you have such a large neighbor, you're not going to simply say, we're not going to talk to you. So even at the height of the crisis, we are going to be engaged with them. But the prospects for reconciliation of the conflict has declined because China's own attitudes are to how they deal with the boundary dispute, or how they deal with a whole range of issues relating to India. They're the ones who take the Kashmir question to the UN Security Council. They're the ones who block India on the nuclear suppliers group. So I think the contradictions are very, very sharp. And at the same time, during the crisis, India said, look, we don't want a kind of US and its allies jumping in into this conflict because India wants to still handle this on its own. That's why if you take the current clash away, you can see the direction was quite clear, but India still wants to deal with this in terms of the immediate conflict on its own. But the balance of power can only be redressed in partnership with the US and Japan and the other partners in the region. And I think the direction was set. Probably it is going to be accelerated. But China is showing no consideration for India's interests, whether it is on the territorial issues or a whole range of other regional and other international issues. Nirupama. Again, to be very crude about this, viewed from Washington, in a sense, is what the United States is looking for from India, what Raja discusses, a balance of power in Asia, and therefore its objective is to see India rise economically and strategically so it will act as a balance against China in the region. Is it that simple that that's, in a sense, why the Americans are so keen on this bilateral relationship, or, or would you put it differently? I think I would describe the picture as a little more nuanced than that. Of course, the US, I would believe, does favor India's rise and India's progress and, you know, for India to become stronger and more capable of balancing China and removing the asymmetry that we see so much in evidence today. But the fact is that the problems that we have with China and this whole issue of unresolved questions left over from history, as it were, is really for India to solve. And uh, of course, the United States would, I presume, support us materially when it comes to intelligence sharing, when it comes to just backing us up in global multilateral institutions. All that is there. But ultimately, this issue that we have with China is really for us to solve. The Chinese, as Raja said, have been extremely insensitive and quite unwilling to take on board some of India's very legitimate concerns, whether it's concerning Pakistan, whether it's concerning our membership of certain global institutions. Take, for instance, the nuclear suppliers group, China's stand on terrorism and the damage it has inflicted on India from cross-border sources emanating from Pakistan. All that displays a very great degree of Chinese insensitivity. Now, the Americans see that. The Americans understand that. 
And the relationship between India and the United States has become steadily stronger. There are some parts of Asia which perhaps would like to hedge their bets or would like to be less overtly oppositional when it comes to what they see as China's rise. But India is one country that has the size, has the potential, has the promise of matching China in the future. And I believe the United States does see that. And the support that comes to us from the United States is partly occasioned by that factor also. Raja, I want to ask both of you in a minute about the way that the US and India are working together in the region, particularly with partners like Japan and Australia. But just so our listeners get a sense of this, both you and Nirupama have talked about new kinds of cooperation between the US and India. But what are we talking about here? If you go back into history, you've had agreements over nuclear energy, for instance. But more recently, either on the security front or on economics, what exactly is this closer relationship delivered? What are we talking about? What are they doing together? On defense, I mean, it's quite clear that we had not bought any American equipment until 2004, 2005. And since then, now close to $20 billion worth of U.S. arms have been bought. And if you look at the Ladakh theater today, all the aircraft flying there, most of them are American aircraft. I mean, you have C-130s. C-17s, you have the helicopters. So, so you have actually the American platforms have become very important because the Russian aircraft are still there. We're buying some French stuff. But the relative weight of the U.S. in the India's defense equation has grown. Second, I think there is a greater consultation and coordination, I suspect, on regional security issues. For example, there was a time when India would discourage the Americans to have security cooperation with India's neighbors. Today, Maldives and the United States have signed a defense cooperation agreement. Bangladesh is reaching out to the U.S. If you, again, take the picture of how has China's power disturbed the balance of power in South Asia, you have actually new equations emerging in the Indian Ocean, in South Asia. And beyond that, on the economic side, I mean, there are fledgling attempts at working together on, for example, infrastructure projects. You have India-Japan doing things in Sri Lanka. It's really the beginning. I, mean, I think we have not done any big projects like the Chinese. But I think what used to be taboo on a number of areas, today there is enough trust, I think, for both of them to start doing things where you have to shape the environment, which is being disturbed, if you will, at least from the Indian perspective, by China's rise. So let's talk a little bit about, in a sense, what you might do about this. So India and the US share an analysis of what's happening in Asia, namely that China is rising and this is threatening to both of their interests in various different respects. But maybe there are divisions over what on earth you do about this and how aggressively and at what speed. And so let's start with the Quad, the grouping of the US, India, Japan, and Australia, which many in the China skeptic camp look to as a grouping that might balance China. What is India's approach to the Quad now? Raja, if you could continue with this, in a sense, how enthusiastic is it about this grouping and, and what does it want to do with it? I think essentially it's still a consultative mechanism. I mean, it's really the diplomats meeting. It used to be at the official level. Now they started meeting at the ministerial level. So it becomes really a consultative mechanism where they can lay out longer-term agenda for how the four countries can coordinate their activities. So I wouldn't over-determine the value of the Quad at this point. In future, as the pressures on all of them mount from China, all of them will need to do a lot more with each other. And my sense is in Australia that's being battered by Chinese economic measures, in India that confronts China's might on its frontier, 
we're going to see a lot more coordination. So quad is a kind of indicator of the future to come, but you can't say at this point it is the balancing mechanism. It is not. We need to see a lot more action in terms of beyond exercises to be able to actually greater coordination, common operations. We're not there yet. It is really the beginning of a process, I think. How it goes, of course, will always depend on if China continues to be aggressive. I think there'll be more pressure on the four countries to do a lot more things together. Yeah, and if I may just come in here, James, I think the Quad, as far as the four countries that are involved in it are concerned, I believe that there is a consensus on the need for a free and open and inclusive and secure Indo-Pacific. Although everybody understands that the Quad is not going to morph into a NATO-like organization and its form really follows function. So right now, you know, you've had these exercises, you've had the Malabar exercises, for instance, in which all the four countries participated. The US and India have the two plus two ministerial dialogue. And we are now talking of an enhancement of supply chain resilience because critical vulnerabilities have been exposed during the pandemic. So it's a key focus between Japan, Australia, and India. And I believe the United States is also consonant uh, with that. So I think the functions of the Quad are constantly evolving. It's important to note that the organization, if you can call it as such, has been revived after a 13-year hiatus. And it certainly is making waves in the region, to use a maritime description. Just to get back to my point earlier, so I was asking Raja about whether the shift in Indian strategic thinking from earlier this year had been a profound one. If you were to have asked the Americans, the Australians, and the Japanese about the Quad in earlier years, they would have accused the Indians of foot dragging and saying India is too worried about upsetting China and therefore it's the break on this organization. We would be happy to go further. Now, India would dispute that, but that's what they would have said. Has that now changed because of what happened earlier this year? Is is India now more willing to try and use this mechanism in interesting ways, Nirupama, do you think? Actually, I would qualify that. When the Quad emerged after the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004-2005, it was the Australians that really got cold feet and it sort of just faded away after that. And if there was reluctance on India's part to join the grouping, it was because policymakers in Delhi did have some apprehension about where this whole thing would go, given the record of the past. And I don't believe we were unnecessarily inhibited by what the Chinese might do or think. Of course, the Chinese have continued to make a lot of noise about the Quad, and so have the Russians. And, you know, there are countries in the region that have their positions about the Quad. But I don't believe India is unnecessarily inhibited about its approach to the Quad any longer. And I think the situation with China in the bilateral relationship with China has something to do with it also. And a greater level of confidence in dealing with a country like the United States and the fact that the whole concept of the Indo-Pacific with the rise of China requires some counterbalancing initiatives to be put in place. Let's talk about President-elect Joe Biden what his agenda might mean. So one of the ideas that he has is a global conference on democracies, and he wants to put the rallying of democracies in various senses at the heart of a kind of renewed US foreign policy. 
Rancha, how does this look from the Indian side? I mean, the scene from Washington, one of the great attractions of US-India relations is you have the world's two largest democracies. And there's a romantic sense that this should be a basis for a kind of values-led partnership. But is that really realistic? Does India want anything to do with a kind of US democracy push? I think one of the problems with this, Biden threw out the idea during the campaign. But since then, he has not said anything that this is going to be convened anytime soon. I mean, there is some speculation. Actually, he might focus on a summit on climate change issues rather than one on democracy. But this theme, you know, that democracies must come together has been around for a long time. And India has worked with the United States on this. I mean, I think you go back to as early as 2000, that time external affairs minister Jaswant Singh supported the Community of Democracies initiative of Clinton administration. Then we had later, we supported the Democracy Fund, which is the Bush administration's idea in the UN. So India will be open to dealing with it. But it is a vague idea at this point of time. Meanwhile, you have a British prime minister has announced a D10. In fact, he's invited the prime ministers of India, Australia, and the South Korea to join him in the G7 summit next year. So this idea is gaining ground, and I think it's going to come in multiple forms. My sense is India would be open to engage the US in any of these forums. One more question on, on this. So you will both know Ashley Tellis, who's a prominent commentator on India-US affairs at the Carnegie Endowment. And he wrote an article recently warning that Indian domestic policy under Prime Minister Narendra Modi and what some see as an anti-democratic tilt under Modi's government, for instance, the Modi government's treatment of minority groups or the kind of fabric of Indian democracy, that this threatens the bilateral relationship, that in the end, if Modi goes too far on some of these issues, it will make it harder for the Americans to cooperate with India. And I, I suppose I wondered what you thought about that. It seems to me that actually the US is so keen on this partnership that actually it's going to cut Modi quite a lot of slack one way or the other. But I wondered whether you thought Ashley was right about this and that there was a threat there. No, I'm not so sure. I mean, uh, because what you have is actually India's certainly lost a lot of goodwill among the liberal sections. But how much influence that has on policy? That's a very different world. I'm a skeptic that concerns about democracy, human rights, have ever had a defining, overbearing impact on the conduct of America's foreign policy. If that were the case, why would Pakistan and China be, been, has had such good relationship with the United States? So I think it's a bit of a fashion to talk about human rights and democracy, except in the early 90s after the Cold War. It has been a consistently declining factor in the way the U.S. conducts relations with the international system. Does that mean that, look, there will be criticism of India in the U.S. Congress? Of course. A lot of media outlets are criticized. But my sense is Biden himself is saying, look, U.S. has to get its democratic act together. If you see his platform, the manifesto in the elections, he says, look, the first thing is U.S. must get its act together and the U.S. must lead the world by the power of its example and not by the example of its power. This summer has raised a lot of questions about U.S. democracy. So my sense is there will be a bit of modesty on that. And uh, there are too many economic and security interests for them to be overridden by the question of what's happening in India. Nirupama, what's your sense on this? Yeah, I would uh, completely agree with what Raja said. I think the fundamental principles that call for a close strategic partnership between India and the United States will prevail under the Biden administration also. And one must remember 
what Sumit Ganguly of Indiana University said recently. He said, there's a degree of pragmatism and common sense in U.S. policy towards India. And you've seen that very much play out in the last decade, regardless of changes in administration. So, yes, there'll be certain issues. I mean, nothing is perfect in either country. The United States has a lot of things to fix as far as its democracy is concerned, that is, improve the democratic ethos and to respect diversity. And so does India. I mean, nobody is blemishless. And I think the more we look inside ourselves and see what we can do to set things right, I think the health of our democracies will improve. But as far as the basic trend, the basic flow of the relationship is concerned, strategic interests will have an overriding importance, and neither government is going to ignore that. Let me ask you both about economics. So, Raja, you wrote a column recently in which you talked about the need for a new kind of geoeconomic diplomacy amongst nations like the US and India who are trying to balance China. And in a sense, there should be a big opportunity here. India wants to take some of the global manufacturing, global supply chains that might leave China in an age of decoupling. The US is looking for other partners in Asia who are not China. But on the other hand, both countries have moved away to some degree from a model of open globalization. The US hasn't joined one of the big Asian trade deals. India didn't join the other big Asian trade deal. So where stands the economic dimension of this partnership? And is that a weakness that needs to be addressed? I don't see it as a weakness. Actually, we've seen a dramatic expansion of the India-US economic relationship, notwithstanding India's problems with the Trump administration. Just before the pandemic and immediately after that, we've seen substantial growth in the US trade relationship. So on trade front, it's pretty good. And the engagement on the knowledge-based economy, IT-related areas is a fairly large integrated relationship. Bangalore and the Silicon Valley, there's a deep tie there. The issue is going to be, can we get together to deal with, one, China's weaponization of economic interdependence? India's decision to walk out of the RCEP is, is partly driven by that. And today, as the U.S. sees China using its economic power to punish a major ally of the United States or trying to undermine EU in Europe. You have actually some consultation between different countries of how we deal with that. Second is the backlash against globalization in the U.S. I think U.S. has second thoughts on how to organize globalization. The assumption that the kind of consensus we had in the 90s can be sustained. I don't think Biden is going to simply go back. When the, he talks about a foreign policy for the middle class, you know, it has to be adapted to concerns of the ordinary people. So my sense on India, too, is changing the way it deals with globalization. So I think that actually opens the door for interesting consultation between India and the U.S. and say, look, how do we reform the international trading system? How much of sovereignty, how much of self-reliance and how much of globalization? That rejigging of the balance between the two will be a major issue. And I think there'll be much Delhi and Washington can do together on. Nirupama, I mean, are you optimistic about the nature of this economic partnership? In the end, America's faith in, in India is predicated on the fact that India's economic rise needs to continue. We haven't talked very much about the coronavirus pandemic, but it's obviously hit India's economy fairly hard. And so that means India's growth rate is going to be lower over the coming few years than it would otherwise have been. What are the opportunities that the US and India can develop 
economically together that they would not have without one another. I've always felt that even more than, you know, the securitization of the relationship that you've seen in the Trump years, it's the economic cooperation and the linkages that have developed over the years that is so vital to this relationship, the lifeblood of this relationship. Just look at the fact that the U.S. is India's largest trading partner. Look at the investments from U.S. companies in India. We just spoke about the linkages between Bangalore, where I am, and Silicon Valley. Energy trade, it's crossed $9 billion just in the last few years. And we didn't talk about the coronavirus, but the health and scientific cooperation is extremely important for the two countries. And today, with the onset of the pandemic, there's this new initiative under the Science and Technology Forum of the two countries. So I think health, the economy, investment, innovation, technology, capital flows, these are all very important, regardless of all the reconsideration and the rejigging that may go on about globalization. When we talk about a self-reliant India, we are not shutting our doors on a competitive India, on an India that is connected to supply chains across the region, an India that is communicating with the rest of the world. So that's where I'll put the economic relationship. Excellent. Let me ask you one final question briefly to close. Same to both of you. If you were to highlight one barrier that is stopping this relationship growing closer, you both agreed that it has been growing closer in different dimensions, security, economics. A lot of this is driven by China. If there's one thing that is keeping the two countries apart. What is it? What is the major barrier that they need to overcome or the biggest blockage to stop a closer working together of these two superpowers? I don't see any major barriers. I mean, I think both of us, we talked about the upward uh, trajectory. It has been an incremental evolution in all directions. If you ask me to really pin me down on this, I mean, I would say, look, I think there will be some concern in Delhi about where the Biden administration might finally settle down in terms of its its own approach to the world, how it's going to identify its priorities. Will it be a China-first Asia policy or will it be Asia-first policy, which is the focused on balance of power? So those issues, I think at this point, the ambivalence about the United States and the inevitable volatility in America's domestic politics, which has become a variable in the way the U.S. conducts its international relations, that's an uncertainty. So I don't see that as a barrier. U.S. is rethinking a lot of its priorities. And I think India would wait to see. And I think we've dealt with far more difficult challenges in the last 20 years. And I don't see why we can't deal with the emerging issues. But I would say, look, I don't see any big barriers for the expansion of the relationship. Yeah, I do not see any fundamentally insurmountable barriers in the relationship. The Trump years tended to be kind of overshadowed by a degree of transactionalism in the relationship. And I would hope that goes away. Mr. Biden is a very different personality. He is very centrist and he believes in reaching across uh, divisions, uh, talking across the aisle. He says he's going to follow a foreign policy for the middle class. And obviously, the American middle class will be front and center as far as those concerns are involved. And that would apply for India too. Every foreign policy really takes its strength from the internal needs of the nation and its priorities. So we can understand that. So I would hope for less transactionalism. I hope Congress will also be on board as far as that is concerned. And I hope there will be more of an opening to Iran. Uh, let's see what the Biden administration has to do on that front. 
We will have to talk about the situation in Afghanistan because what happens there after the U.S. troop drawdown by May next year is going to vitally affect our interests in the region. So we have a lot of talking to do, a lot of dialogue to continue on issues of strategic significance in our region, apart from the maritime environment and laying down the rules of the road there. There's a lot to do as far as the landmass is concerned also around us. Thank you both very much. That was fascinating. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that there's been a huge amount of attention paid to the relationship between the US and China during the Trump years. But as we move forward, the heart of Asia is going to be defined by this triangle between the US, China and India. And therefore, the issues we've discussed over the last 40 minutes are going to be at the very heart of a changing Asia. So thank you very much to my guests, Nirupama Rao from Bangalore and Roger Mohan from here in Singapore. Thanks also to our producers. And also thank you to Alexander Lestrange, who composed our theme music. I should end by saying that we'd love to hear from any of you who are listening. So we're on Twitter at, at Asia Matters Pod. You can follow us there or you can contact us via the website Asia Matters Pod. Goodbye, and thank you very much for listening.